Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a Sunday special edition of A Vision for You Today. We're glad that you're here. Today is Sunday, April 8, 2018, and my name is Melanie C., a recovered compulsive overeater from Oregon. The share ID numbers for Friday, April 6, Big Book Study Meetings 2018, are the following. The 7 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study Meeting is 11259, 11,259. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study Meeting, that share ID number is 11262, 11,262. This morning, A Vision for You presents A Business That Takes No Personal Inventory Usually Goes Broke. Think of it as a daily performance and examination. We treat ourselves, humans, like a business in the very same way. Look around. Businesses that stay viable and relevant update and upgrade frequently. What seems like extravagant expenditures turn out to be just the edge to stay alive. In the 1980s, such a blind spot wiped out an entire town in Oregon, and it was devastating. Today, it's a ransacked ghost town crippled by such a dangerous avoidance. And more recently, a big chain store was built along the freeway just five years ago. Beautiful, very expensive store, state-of-the-art and top-of-the-line. Over the course of the past month, construction began on the interior. Curious thing for a building and a business that was only five years young. I finally asked last week, since the construction took down so much and the inventory dwindled, what's to come with all this construction, I asked. Bigger and better, she said, and went on to explain the inventory process that led to such changes. Times had changed, and the corporation found out what was not working and what was going to have to move in order for them to be successful in the future. We treat our lives just like this, like a business, like a business, or we too will die. Take out the emotion, the flashbacks, the morbid reflection. It's simply not the place for that kind of being. Take stock in self to save self. And we do not ever finish inventorying if we were going to remain viable, thriving, and moving into our future, growing and bursting with bloom. Step four is where this begins, yet it continues daily. Today we are going to hear how a fellow in recovery lives this out loud each and every day and the powerful benefits of doing just that. So stick with us as we journey through the experience of a powerful direction of application found in the pages of these big books told by our guest speaker today. Our guest speaker today is recovered and hails from the beautiful state of New Jersey. She is truly a dedicated student of the big book and recently has taken this message of the big book on the road. We know her as Kim G. from South Jersey. Please help me welcome Kim to the line. Good morning, Kim. Good morning, Melanie. Good morning, everyone. And, and, and Melanie, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for your service. I want to thank you for your recovery. And I want to thank you for your friendship and fellowship to Overeaters Anonymous. Um, so I wanted to kind of give you an idea of, of to start out with my path in OA and why I decided to pick this topic um, for, for this morning's presentation. That, that uh, Melanie gave a great analogy of why we have to continually do this inventory process. You know, my personal path um, was, I, my largest size was a size 24 in my early 20s where I couldn't walk up a flight of stairs. 
without having to catch my breath, and I was being threatened to be put on high blood pressure medication. I've also been a size two where I lost my menstrual cycle, and when I was brushing my hair, hair was falling out. But I've also been the size I currently am, which is an 810, and been bulimic, where I was throwing up, specifically over-exercising to the point that I would run 9, 10 miles on a Saturday and be in bed because I couldn't walk till Sunday morning. So my own experience has taught me that food and weight is not my problem because for many decades before OA and in OA, I have gotten abstinence thousands of times and I've gotten to goal weight dozens of times. So how did I get into Overeaters Anonymous? You know, my, my mother actually came into OA when I was 11, but I didn't come in until I was 27. And I have to tell you, I thought I was a lot smarter than my mother. So even though I saw my mother demonstrate a, a program where she was recovered, I thought to myself, well, if it's a 12-step program, Kim, you know, Kim, Kim G, I can do 12 steps in 12 weeks, then I can leave. Well, for 17 years, in Overeaters Anonymous, what I experienced was temporary respite. And what happened as my disease progressed is those periods of abstinence became shorter and the periods of relapse became larger. Because I interpreted that the steps were optional and I could do them intermittently. I thought it was something I did until I reached step 12 and then all I had to do was go to meetings and do tools. I thought sponsorship from the receiving end and from the giving end was about being a diet buddy and a life coach. And then seven years ago, when I reached a spiritual bottom, I became a student of the big book and I became a 12-step practitioner. Now, at that time, no one in my area was doing the big book. Everyone I worked with, this was new material to try to do these steps specifically and precisely through the big book. And I had a teacher that said that if someone relapses, they were never recovered to begin with. And I believed that. But I have to tell you, I don't believe that anymore. I believe that you can have a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. And if you do not implement on a daily basis, the mental twist will come back and you will relapse. I also believe that people only relapse because bad things happen. That's not, I don't believe it anymore. So what I have seen over these last seven years that I've been recovered and my 24 years that I've been in OA is that this 12-step program is all about a connection with a power that we have watered down all 12-step programs one day at a time to one day at a time, not having our food, our drugs, our alcohol, or whatever that substance is. But what the big book tells me is what one day at a time is, that daily reprieve, is I have to treat this chronic, persistent condition of the mental twist that is only removed as a result of the constant, persistent, persistent application of the step work. So when I speak with people who have recovered and relapsed, one of the things that I'm comforted by is that during that conversation, it becomes clear that they stopped doing 10, 11, and 12. Or maybe they didn't even understand what it meant to do 11, 10, 11, and 12. And that people are just as likely, just as in, in more about alcoholism, with Jim who loses everything that picks up, and Fred who has the best day in the world picks up. I think that one of the problems is that people confuse feeling better with getting better. So when I have these conversations, I think we public people, you know, with people too, another a delusion I think is that people think that recovered people have perfect lives. But as a recovered woman, I don't have fear. I don't have resentment. I don't have anger. That's not true. The different... <laughs> Sorry, my dog is passionately about this. 
Johnny, hey, quiet. Thank you. So what happens is I still am a human being. I have fear. I have resentment. I have anger. But the difference is if I daily apply these steps, then I do not have to stay there. You know, a simple, um, uh, sorry, I'm getting distracted by my dog. A simple um, saying I like is a bird can fly in your head, but you don't need to build it a nest. And that's what the 12 steps allow me to do. Those thoughts can come into my head, but by practicing these steps, they don't have to stay there, and then I don't have to get restless, irritable, and discontent. And I think of, too, when I hear the story about Bill and Eddie. And when, you know, there was no 12 steps then. So when Eddie came to see Bill in the town's hospital, he gave him this book, The Variety of Religious Experiences, which is the only book that's mentioned in the big book. And what Bill was really hit by was that William James said there's two um, characteristics of a spiritual experience. One is calamity. Makes total sense to me. I don't know anybody who's come to a 12-step program saying, I'm having a really good day. Let me join a 12-step program. But the other one was that it was transient, that it was fleeting. And that's where Bill really got the idea that he had to recreate this spiritual experience and on a daily basis in order to keep it. And one of the best ways to recreate it is to help recreate it in others. And we see through the Big Book, Big Book consistently, work with others, work with others, work with others. There's a fellow that, that's on the line that gave a great description. She talked about having a fan. And if you have a fan that's running and you unplug it, that fan will keep moving for a short period of time. But because it gets disconnected from the electricity, it eventually will putter out. And that's what I see a lot, is people will stop doing this work. And for a while, they're okay. But what happens is they're disconnected from that power, and eventually the, the fan stops working, and eventually that metal twist will come back and we will pick up again. So I just want to give you another analogy. When I recovered seven years ago, one of the catalysts was that I had broken my ankle. I had slipped in a storm, looked down, my foot was facing 180 degrees the other way, and I was on disability when I did the steps. So I always use that as a, um, as a correlation. It reminds me of my recovery. Well, first of all, I had this twofold problem with my ankle. Number one, the outside bone, which I can't remember the name of it, snapped in half. And also, I tore every muscle and ligament in my ankle. And the doctor explained to me that the larger aspect of my disease or my injury was these muscles and tendons. And in fact, he told me there was a good chance I may not walk again. And if I did walk, there's a good chance I might just be, I might have a severe limp. But as severe as that was, I had to have surgery. And I had it the next day. I had to have pins and screws put in my, in my um, ankle to, to stabilize that bone. It's the same thing with my disease. The larger aspect of my disease is the mental twist. But in order to address the mental twist, I have to have the stabilization of being abstinent. I also had, was told I had 12 months to recover. And if I, whatever I didn't get back in that 12 months, I probably wasn't going to get back again. So what I would do is go back to an appointment after 30 days and say, doctor, why aren't I, why aren't I better? And he would say, well, I told you, it's going to take 12 months. And I would come back another 30 days later and say, doctor, why aren't I better? And he would say, I told you it's going to take 12 months. I see the same thing in OA. We do step one, why aren't I better? I'm absent. Because it takes 12 steps. I hear see people in step two, okay, I believe in God. Why aren't I better? 
Because the problem is we're blocked from that power and we need to do all 12 steps. I also had to go to physical therapy three times a week. And I saw the same people. And I remember my physical therapist asking him, because I saw people I was, I was in the therapy with that didn't seem to be getting better. I seemed to be getting better faster than them. And I said, what's going on with that? And he kind of smiled at me. He said, well, Kim, it's pretty obvious to us that you're doing your homework between your appointments. And it's pretty obvious to us that they are not. I see that in LA all the time. I see people go to meetings and the only time they look at the steps is during the meeting. Or the only time they think about it is when they sponsor, when they're talking to their sponsor. And I try to stress that with people. It's not the meeting and it's not your sponsor that's going to determine whether you recover. It's what you do between the meetings and it's what you do between the times that you're talking to your sponsor. I also know that I am not cured of this ankle injury. If you met me today, I have no limp at all. You would never know I had an ankle injury. I am recovered from that injury. I do not suffer from the, that injury. However, I know I'm not cured. If I don't do my yoga, if I'm not keeping that foot limber, I start to, I start to have problems. And I also have certain limitations. I can't run. And running more than a half a mile, my ankle really hurts. I also, which was very sad for me, is I can't wear heels anymore. I had to give away all my cute shoes because my foot doesn't point properly. In order to wear a heel, I have to wear flats at all times. But I am grateful for the mobility that I have. It's the same thing. I am recovered today. I do not suffer from compulsive overeating, but I understand I'm not cured, and I have to have a daily treatment in order to maintain that state. So why did I pick this topic? You know, a business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. Because I think a lot of times people think that the regular inventory is, is doing a fourth step and they don't never have to do it again. We're told later in the book that the spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. If I don't live these steps, I will not get the results of these steps. We're even warned in step four. It talks about looking at our grosser handicaps. We've, we've digested big chunks of truth about ourselves, and it's just the beginning. If I don't continually do this work, I'm not going to continually get the results again. And one of my AA mentors, one of the things I heard in one of the first meetings I went with him was, and I have it in the front of my big book, the big book meets you where you are and elevates you from there. So what I wanted to do was take some, some parts of this big book and see how do I experience this big book as a recovered woman? Not when I went through it trying to get recovered, but as a recovered woman, how can this book continue to have depth and weight for me? Because let me tell you, I am convinced of two things right now. What I'm convinced of is I'm experiencing permanent recovery. I never need to eat again. I am not cocky or afraid. I, am, I have neutrality. I am safe and protected. The obsession's been removed. But I am also equally convinced if I stop doing this work, I am three or four days away from a relapse. So let's jump in this book and let's see how I look at this as a recovered woman. So I'm going to give page numbers and, you know, I'm on how fast I'm going to kind of go through it quickly. So you might just want to listen versus uh, right, try to get to the page. But the first one is in the doctor's opinion, page um, XXVIII or Roman numeral 28, where it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Let me tell you that I am still an effect person. I, my mental twist, my alcoholic brain needs an effect. 
But what's beautiful is I get the effect from the steps. So I don't need to get the effect from the food. But I am totally aware of the fact if I stop getting the effect from the steps, my brain's going to default back to the only other place it got an effect from, which is the food. So I have to look as a woman who's recovered, how am I getting the effect from the steps today? So I want to look at, I always used to think to myself, like, why are we so hooked into these nine step promises? You know, we read them almost at every meeting. And I think the 10 step promises are, are why I came into OA. I came into OA to stop eating. I came into OA to have neutrality around food. I came into OA so I wouldn't be tortured by the food. So why is we identify so much in with those, those nine step promises? And I think it's because, and I heard this on a, on a talk, it's because the nine step promises is what the food gave me. I needed an effect, and for a period of time, the food gave me that effect. So if you go to those promises on page 83, when I am restless, when I am irritable, when I'm discontent and uncomfortable on my own skin, and I have a few bites, I know a new freedom and a happiness. When I have that first bite, I do not regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. When I had that first bite, I comprehended the word serenity and I will know peace. When I had that first bite, I, I myself seeking would sleep away. When I had that first bite, my whole attitude and outlook upon life changed. When I had that first bite, my fear of people and economic insecurity left me. So what I have to do as a recovered woman is I have to seek that effect in step 10, which is to me simply my inventory work with another recovered person. I have to seek that effect in step 11 with a connection with a higher power. And I have to seek that effect in step 12, which is helping others. Because I am told in the doctor's opinion, I have a twofold allergy. And to me, I see it simply as a twofold solution. I have an allergy of the body and I can never, ever, ever have those foods again. I have to have entire abstinence. That does not change because I've done the steps. I can never go back to those foods. But I also have this mental twist, and the solution in the doctor's opinion is to have an entire psychic change. And that's where I have that daily reprieve. I have to continually take my medicine. The simple way I think about it is I'm Cinderella. I get to go to the ball. I'm recovered. But every night at midnight, my beautiful dress turns into rags, the carriage turns into a pumpkin, and the groomsmen turn into mice. And every morning, I become an, un, an untreated compulsive overeater. But that's not frightening to me today because I have a treatment that I can become Cinderella every single day. So let's go to page Bill's story now on page 14 where it talks about, um, let's see, so it says particular, at the bottom of the page, particularly it was imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. This is what Bill is saying. Faith without works was dead, he said. And how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through, through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials in those spots. So once again, it's telling me life isn't going to be perfect just because I work these steps. I always thought that about losing weight. Once I, once I get to a size six, everything will be perfect. But it's also letting me know in a 12-step program, to enlarge my spiritual life is very specific. It's through work, which to me is 10 and 11, which means I have to have done one through nine, and self-sacrifice for others, which means it's step 12, which means I have to help other compulsive overeaters and I have to practice these principles in all my affairs. And then in the next paragraph on page 15, it talks about, Bill reiterates this. It says, I was plagued by self-pity and resentment. 
This sometimes drove me back to drink, but I soon found when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. So Bill doesn't say when he's feeling restless, irritable, discontent, that he's calling Bob, that he's going to a meeting. What he's saying is help others. And over and over in the book, you'll hear when you're having a rough time, work with others. Now, if we move in to there's a solution on page 19, now one of the things I really hooked into on 19 going through the steps for the first time was on the first paragraph, we feel that elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. Once again, telling me I have to be abstinent to work these steps. But as a recovered woman, I looked at that next paragraph. A much more important demonstration of our principles lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. So am I doing that? Am I demonstrating these principles in my home, my occupation, and my affairs? Or am I only demonstrating this in Overeaters Anonymous the one hour that I'm in a meeting? That was my problem for many years. I practiced these principles with you people that loved me, but I would go out and call havoc in my family and in, in the rest of the world. Once again, on the top of page 20, they're going to slam home this idea. Our very lives, the top line, as ex-problem drinkers depends on our constant thought of others and how we may meet their needs. Do I believe that? Or am I thinking that now that I'm good, heck with the people in my meeting. Heck with helping another person. I got mine, and that's all I'm worried about. You know, we hear about this in the next couple pages, about the moderate, the heavy, the real compulsive overeater. Am I under the delusion after I've done the steps and lost my weight that maybe I'm not a real compulsive overeater? Maybe I'm really a moderate or a heavy eater. Maybe I can go back and, and try to test the boundaries of my allergy. Maybe I was making way too, too big a deal out of it, of eliminating all X, Y, or Z, and maybe I can just start to ease that stuff back in there. So at the end of this chapter, on page 28, it talks about, in the first paragraph, we in turn sought the same escape from, with all the desperation of a drowning man. So do I still believe that today? Yes, I do. I believe that I have to seek the solution as a recovered woman as much as I did when I recovered. In fact, sometimes I think it's more. Because what I did to recover seven years ago isn't sufficient for what I do today. And I'm not talking about quantity. I'm talking about the quality of my recovery and my continuing to grow in understanding and effectiveness on a daily basis. So let's go into now into more about alcoholism, which is all about the mental twist. On page 30, it talks about in that first paragraph the idea that somehow, someday, we will control and enjoy our drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. Well, let me tell you, I have not compulsively ate or ingested my binge foods in seven years. So how can I personalize that as a recovered woman? The idea that somehow, someday, I will control and enjoy my thinking is the great obsession I have. The control and enjoy my life to control and draw my relationships without a connection to a higher power? Do I get the fact that my thinking is what needs to be addressed now because the allergy is academic because I haven't had a compulsive bite? You know, we talk about in the allergy, the definition of having an abnormal reaction to a certain substance. This tells me I have an abnormal reaction to abstinence. I don't do abstinence very well. So what I have to do is dig into these steps. Do I believe that? You know, we see um, the Jim versus Fred, which I talked about. You know, I really have observed 
as many people I work with pick up during the good times and the bad times. Because, see, when things aren't working my way, I need a power. When things are going my way, yeah, I got it, God. I'm getting my way. Put you on the back burner. And I can't tell you how many people I've seen pick up because they met the right guy. They adopted the child they always wanted to have. They got that promotion. And the spiritual work was on the back burner because they're getting what they want. So now let's go into we agnostics. This, this is a paragraph, a chapter that I have to really continually look at for me. So when it says here on page 45, lack of power was my dilemma. Well, if I, if I have power, then there is no dilemma. And the power is not me. The power is of a God. When it says here that you need a power by which we could live, it doesn't say a power by which I can eat. Am I deluded because I'm through step 12 that I now have the power? Do I still see my powerlessness as in seven years the way I saw my powerlessness that first year? One of the things I love on page 46, it talks about in that first full paragraph, we have agnostic temperament. Now, this is the way that I look at it now. Is, you know, we talk about atheist, agnostic, and believer as far as God. I, I think of it as long self-sufficiency. If I am in atheistic temperament, I am in total self-sufficiency. I got this. If I am in agnostic temperament, that's when I think, yeah, God can handle this. But, you know, I, this, this I got. I'm, I'm torn between the two. And a believer is someone who knows I have to be totally reliant on a power greater than myself, whatever that power is for me individually. Well, let me tell you, I can be of atheistic temperament, agnostic temperament, and believer temperament all within a 24-hour period dozens of times, which is why I need to be working these steps on a daily basis. Because if I am in agnostic temperament, I'm at risk for the, for the mental twist. If I am in atheistic temperament, I am at risk for the, for the uh, mental twist. So with these, to go again to these bedevilments on page 52, these are great questions to ask myself because that's telling me that agnostic or that atheistic temperament is starting to come in. So I have to ask myself, seven years in, am I having trouble with personal relationships today as an abstinent woman? Am I having trouble controlling my emotional nature seven years in? Am I afraid to misery and depression? I have to tell you that's not my truth on a long-term basis, but it's definitely my truth on some days. And I, I have to apply these steps in order to get relieved of those, those bedevilments on a daily basis. Because I think back to, to um, the prior chapter when it says, at certain times. At certain times, maybe I can get away with doing these steps, not doing them. At certain times, maybe I can use self-will. But the problem is, with my alcoholic brain, I don't know when those at and certain times are. And because of that, I need to consistently do the steps in order to make sure that that mental twist doesn't come back. So if we go to page 53, it talks about this absolute commitment we have to have. It talks about in that second paragraph that the proposition that God is everything or he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What is our choice to be? So I like to look at this more holistically too. This 12-step way of life is everything or it is nothing. The big book steps, and they, as they're laid out in this book, is everything or it is nothing. Am I all in? Am I all in seven years in as I was when I first recovered? Because I, I am at a place that I understand what I suffer from, that having a connection with the power is no longer optional. I have to be in 100%. 
So it talks about here on page 55, that first paragraph. Actually, we are fooling ourselves for deep down every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by ego, and by pomp, by worship of other things. So what is obscuring me today? You know, what is the calamities, in, which to me is just life? You know, my, my, my job is going through a software change. There's a good chance I might get laid off. What is, what is going on with my ego? You know, oh, my goodness, I just, did a, I just went to Ireland and, and, and ran a big book, you know, big book study. I should be above step work at this point. And my worship of other things. You know, my fear of if I get laid off, would I lose my house? Da, 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 da. Like all those things that are in my head that I have to have a connection with the power. And I want to share a little picture that I, I have recently had in my head. I, I'm a Catholic. And one of the famous pictures, you know, of Jesus is at the Last Supper, which is Passover. And he's there with his, his 12 disciples. I saw this beautiful picture that showed Jesus as, as the Last Supper, but instead of the disciples, were all incredible spiritual teachers. It was Gandhi, Muhammad, Abraham, Martin Luther King. Um, I would like to put Bill Wilson and Bob Smith up there. Because what I see is those are all people who have found page 55. These are all my brothers and sisters who have found a power greater than themselves, which is why this 12-step program does not have a religious denomination. We can believe in any religion or no religion. We can have a God of a, of a, of a, of a specific or a God of principles. That's all this is. We have each found that God within ourselves, regardless of what that is. And then at the bottom of page 55, it talks about, on the, the last full paragraph, with this attitude, I cannot fail. So what is the attitude? It talks about sweeping away prejudice, thinking honestly, and searching diligently within myself, which is an inventory. Do I believe that today? And that attitude is telling me I cannot fail, which means if I don't have that attitude, I probably will fail. Am I continuing to sweep away my prejudices? Am I continuing to think honestly, which I can't do on my own, which is why I need to recover people? And am I continuing to search diligently within myself, which means am I continuing to actively practice 10, 11, and 12. Now, step three, to me, is a description of self-will. This is me being confronted with what is life like when Kim's in charge? To me, it's the opposite of step 11. So a lot of times in step 11, I will utilize pages 60 to 63 to see how in touch I am with being God-centered or other-centered and being self-centered. So am I in, am I in self-will? So I take these questions on page 61, or I take other parts of it and put them in question form. You know, have I quit playing God today? Am I convinced that any, my life on self-will can hardly be a success? Am I under the delusion that I can wrest satisfaction out of this world if only I manage well? And I'll shift that right now with my job. Am I, am I a victim of the delusion I can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of my job if only I manage well? Am I a producer of confusion rather than harmony? Confusion is Kim's will. Harmony is God's will. Am I driven by a hundred forms of fear? What is driving me today? Am I allowing that power to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt? So if we go into step four now, you know, there's an argument I, I can hear, and, and, you know, a lot of, even among big book teachers and, and a lot of AA speakers I like, some people argue that you do four through nine once and you live in 10, 11, and 12. Some people believe you have to do a yearly four through nine. 
honestly, I don't care. The question is, are you doing the work? Who cares what labels it? If you want to label it going back and doing a four through nine, if you want to label it doing 10 on a daily basis, the problem is people who stop doing the inventory in general. Why is that? Because if we look at four through nine, the resentment is the number one offenders. You know, one of the things that I love in, in step um, four is when they talk about those first four, three columns, you know, who I'm angry at, what they did, and how it affected me. And we're warned that if we stay in those first three columns, people will continue to wrong us and we will continue to stay sore. Now, my, my experience is a lot of times I'll get a 10-step call, and what people really do is they give me the first three columns. And they get riled up and charged up. What the book tells us in step 10 is I go straight to that fourth column. Where am I selfish? Where am I dishonest? Where am I self-seeking and where am I frightened? Because I can't change anybody else. That is why I love the fourth step um, prayer of God save me from being angry. Because what that tells me is God can save me from being angry. He can't, he, I'm, I'm, what I'm doing is saying God make other people do something different. And if God can save me from being angry, then people can be whoever they want to be. Now, a mistake that I personally made was I left these four-step prayers in the fourth step. So what I, I, I encourage my sponsees to do, people I speak with, is these prayers in step four. There's a sick man's prayer. There's a fear prayer. There's three relationship prayers. I need to bring them into my daily practice. Because I will continue to have resentments, continue to have fear, and continue to have relationship issues that I can treat with these 12 steps. Um, so the fear, what I found was just brilliant about this book, is that it goes resentment to God save me from angry to a fear. What I found for myself is that my resentment covered my anger, my anger covered, uh, my resentment covered my anger, and my anger covered my fear. And it unraveled that but I need to continually um, treat that. You know, the fear prayer is on page six, oops, page 68. Yes. Um, we ask God to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. Am I putting that into action? If God is taking away the fear, what am I doing? Because the fear is no longer there. This whole entire pro process is about action. And looking into the, the sex conduct, what I do when I move it into 10, 11, and 12 is this now becomes relationships, not just about sex. And what I have done, which I was taught a few years in, was I've created ideals for all areas of my life. And that does not mean who do I want my boyfriend to be, who do I want my parents to be, who do I want my people at work to be. The question of the ideal is who do I want to be as a daughter? Who do I want to be as a sister? Who do I want to be as a girlfriend? Who do I want to be as a member of Overeaters Anonymous? Who do I want to be as a political member of my community? Who do I want to be as a coworker? Who do I want to be as an employee? Who do I want to be as a supervisor? And what happens is when I go into, tenth, into that 10th step, and I go into that 11th step specifically, when it says, what could I have done better and what corrective measures should be taken, I now have a gauge of what that means. See, I have this North Star of what I want to, how I want to align myself with my higher power. And where I fall short is where God comes in and helps me with it. And I'm never going to be perfect. You know, we often talk about progress rather than perfection, which to me is a warping of what the big book says. What the big book says is we claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. 
Because see, what I did in my alcoholic brain was progress, not perfection. That well, I was mostly abstinent today. Yeah, that's progress. You know, I, I only had 14 candy bars today, and not 20. What it's saying is that we work. You know, I, I think of it as school. I always studied to get 100. I often did not. I would get an 85, a 90, maybe even once in a while 95. But I never studied to get 80 percent. And that's where we're working these ideals to the best of our ability using as a North Star. So I, I want to give an example of how this has, this has to grow. My, my youngest brother, um, I had an ideal with him. Well, he got hired at my job. I had to create a new ideal of myself as a sister to him and as a coworker to him. And enduring prayer and meditation when he had some problems at work and I wanted to be the big sister versus the coworker, I heard, it, I heard from God, include him. Include him in this ideal. See what he needs from you. And I, we went out to lunch, and we worked out an ideal for work. So these ideals are constantly changing. So let's look at on page 70, and it tells us about do we fall short. It says, suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumble. Does this mean we're going to get drunk? Some people tell us so. But this is only a half-truth. It depends on our motives. If we are sorry about what we have done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we'll be forgiven and have learned our lesson. If we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. We are not theorizing. These are the facts out of our experience. So once again, this is not about being perfect people. And I'll use gossip. You know, gossip was, was a big thing with me. Have I not gossiped since I've been through the steps? Oh, hell no. But when I gossip, I'm asking God into that. I am making restitution for that gossip. And I'm going towards that ideal. Now, as I said, there's a lot of stuff going on at work, a lot of justifiable anger, which my coworkers can get involved in because they are not compulsive readers. But if I get into say, screw that, this company deserves the gossip, and I start getting involved with that, let me tell you, I am sure that I will relapse because I have to be working within these ideals in order to maintain my sobriety. So let's go into the chapter into action which is talking about step five. So it talks about on page 74, in actual practice, we, us we usually find a solitary self-appraisal insufficient, which is why I need step 10. See, I can't be objective about my life, but I, other people can. I, can't be, I, can't be, I, I can be objective about your life. I can't be objective about mine, which is why step 10, we need recovered people that are going to be able to come in and help us see the truth. And what I seek and my people I do 10 step with are people that are going to lead me to this book and people that will tell me the truth. So on page 73, I often use this as part of my step 11, the first two full paragraphs. It talks about having this double life and this stage character, wanting to enjoy a certain reputation, but knowing in my heart I don't deserve it. The inconsistency is made worse by the things I do on a spring. And under constant fear and tension, this makes for more drinking. Well, let me tell you, like I said, I haven't compulsively over eight in seven years. So how do I make that true in my life today? So what are the things that I spree on today? Am I spreeing on anger, fear, resentment, judgment, self-justification? And those are the things that I'm going to get under constant fear and tension, which will lead me back to my drinking or my eating unless I continue to do this work. So I will often use this as step 11. Where am I living the double life? Where am I thinking that my street cred is more important? And those are the areas that I'm going to be asking God in. 
And then we'll go to 6 and 7, which is on page 76, where it talks about, um, you know, the, the seven-step prayer, which I love. So, you know, you know I'm, I'm now willing that you should have all of me good and bad. I'm not the arbiter of what's good and bad anymore. The simple prayer I use personally for step seven now is use me. Use me. Because this is not about, once again, that all these defects are going to be gone tomorrow. This is about God removing from us what is, it says here, would um, re- remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Some of my defects God uses. You know, I know I can be very rigid. I know that I can be very black and white. I know I'm very professorial. I'm jealous of people that emote better than me and kind of, you know, a friend of mine, we do stuff together. And I just love listening to her because she cries every time we do something together. And I don't cry at all. But the thing is, God's going to use me to help other people. So am I asking for that? And the fact is, I don't work on my defects. That was a big fallacy. And I know other big, big book teachers will differ on this. So if what you're doing is working for you, what your sponsor is saying for you is different. Don't disregard this. But I used to write a list of all my defects on one side and then the assets on the other, and I would try to work on the assets. That, to me, directly is what this is the thing I can't do. I mean, I, if I'm dishonest, I'm not an idiot. I know I'm supposed to be honest. I can't be honest on my own. That's why I need six and seven. If, if God removes my dishonesty, I naturally fall into honesty. If God removes my selfishness, I also automatically become selfless. I can't work on my defects because of the way that my mental twist works. So we, if we jump now to step 10, it talks about our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not about maintenance. I need to continue to grow. And the way that I personalize this is that my understanding is, is me as a, as a um, student. I have to constantly be seeking a new experience with this book. You know, this is where God comes in so beautifully. Um, I, I, on Thursday, I heard about one of my AA teachers um, creating a new meeting on Thursday night. Well, it just happened to be Passover, and I'm sponsoring a girl that is Jewish, and she couldn't meet that night. And I said, you know what, I'm going to check out this meeting since I have the free time. I could feel my soul softening. I could feel my soul glowing. And I did some prayer and meditation, and I'm going to rearrange my schedule so that I can go to this meeting. I need to be a student. I need to be around people who are further down the spiritual path than I am. And for me personally, a lot of that has to happen in AA, even though I'm not an alcoholic. I need these people that are using this book as a, as a blueprint for life. And then my effectiveness is how am I as a teacher? Am I able to carry this message more clearly? Am I able to help more people than I did seven years ago? Absolutely. Do I sponsor the same way as seven years ago? Absolutely not. Do I hope in two years from now I'm going to continue to grow and be able to help more people and sponsor differently? Absolutely. So let's go into step 11. I, I always use this example, and as a woman who's ever been married, I think it's funny. But if you, get on, if you get married and you get on that altar and you say, I do, your husband, and you never have another conversation with him, and you be ha- act exactly the way you did on the day you were married, do you think you would be married five years or ten years later? I don't think so. That relationship has to grow. That relationship has to, has to be forged deeper and deeper. It's the same thing. Step 11 allows us to deepen that relationship with a higher power. And step 11 is three practices. Step 11 is a morning practice, an evening practice, and a pausing throughout the day. 
if you are saying that you do step 11 on a daily basis and all that means to you is you say a couple of prayers, that's not what step 11 is in the big book. If you're not doing all three practices, you're not going to be growing and you're not doing step 11. This is my personal experience. As soon as I do that first step nine, I'm immediately into step 10. I have to commence this way of living vigorously as soon as I, as soon as I learn that step nine idea. And as I'm doing that and my step nines are being done, my step nines diminish because, see, if I'm actively practicing step 10, then what I'm doing is I'm interceding before I'm causing harm. And if I really get grounded in step 11, if I specifically am pausing throughout the day to check on that connection with the power, my step 10s dissipate because I'm not getting disturbed as much. But what happens is I unravel the same exact way. As I put down my step 11s, my step 10s start popping up because I'm starting to get disturbed again. And if I stop doing step 10, my step 9s pop up because now I'm starting to do harm. So the way that I think about this is that the 12-step program is my skeleton for life. It's my absolute skeleton for life. It is what creates the ability for me to have a connection. And in step 11, I get to play. I get to play with those outside practices. And I encourage my sponsees to call people and find out who are the authors people are reading. What are, what are the spiritual practices people are trying? But understand that what gives you access to that is that you have to be access to a power. And the only way I get access to a power as an addict is by doing the 12 steps. So let's get into step 12. Step 12, the first, um, on page 89, the first sentence. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. I like to read it the opposite. Practical experience shows that people that don't work with others don't stay sober. And I have to really think about it with working with others. It's not just the people I take through the steps. Am I returning phone calls? The biggest complaint I get in Overeaters Anonymous. When I go to my home group, am I coming in five minutes early, leaving five, leaving five minutes early? You know, am I only talking to my friends when there's new people in there that, that need it? Am I willing to have conversations about a chapter with somebody? Am I willing to help someone if they're confused about a, how a fourth step works or a ninth step works or if they have sponsoring questions? I'm asking God in to what are my talents and how I can utilize them to help Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. You know, one of my AA uh, mentors, again, when he talks about people not wanting to sponsor, and a lot of times they say we don't feel worthy which, you know, they're scared to sponsor. Personally, I would be scared not to sponsor because if you're not sponsoring, you're going to pick up. But he says it's time you stop F&B the patient and you start F&B in the doctor. And I believe that's true. I often talk to people, and when they are getting restless, irritable, discontent, what I hear, often hear them say is, well, yeah, I need, I need to practice some self-care. I need to work on me. So I, 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 need, to get, I need to drop my sponsees. Let me tell you, I think that's the most dangerous thing you can do because the problem is all I'm doing is thinking about me. We were warned about that in step three. And the big book tells us if your problem is you, the best way not to think about you is to think about others. And let me tell you personally again, as much as going through this book was wonderful, I didn't learn this book until I taught it. And that's where I learned. And I remember in college thinking that. If I was in college and I always offered to help people study, because I knew if I could teach you the math problem, I didn't need to study the math problem. So, um, okay. So what I'm hoping at this point is that my presentation has inspired you. 
but also relays a complete urgency to do the work. But I also want to say, for those of you who are not Step 12, lean into the step that you're in. I often have people who call me to ask me about my 10 and 11 when they're only on Step 2. We need to lean into the step that we're in. I want an effective spiritual experience. And if I relapsed, which I had to admit 77 years ago, if I had relapsed over and over, then I had to admit I didn't have an effective experience. I need to ask for a new experience. I need to look at the steps differently. Um, and from someone I, I really care about in the line often says that in over is an honest, people come in by the hundreds and leave by the 99. And the sad reality in my experience is that the big book works 100% of the time if we do the steps 100% of the time. The problem is I rarely see people do it 100% of the time. You know, it talks about on page 59, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. My experience in No Readers Anonymous is rarely have I seen someone thoroughly follow our path. And in my home group, I'm going to end with this. Part of our format says the, the, uh, the purpose of this, this meeting is to look at the program I'm currently working Look at the program that's in our text and make adjustments where necessary. And my experience is the longer that I'm abstinent, the more narrow the path is as far as I have to continually work these steps. But what happens is the wider my life is. The more narrow this path is that I know I have to follow these precise directions, the more freedom that I experience on a daily basis. And with that, I pass. Thank you so much, Kim G, for giving so much to yourself today and walking us through the big book like that. Very vital, vital, vital presentation this morning. Thank you. We will ask Kim G for her contact information at the conclusion of this meeting. So stick around for that. But I will give you the share ID number just now so you'll have it. And that is 11266, 11,266. And then we get to go into the question and answer portion of this meeting. Are there any questions that anyone has about Kim's presentation this morning? This is Katie G. from Boston. Katie Esther G. Hey, Esther. Good morning. Michelle. Michelle. First initial, Michelle, of your last name? L. Oh, got it. Thank you so much. Laura Z. Leah D. Laura Z. and Leah D. Marjorie. Like a good list start. Oh, okay, Marjorie, we'll throw you in there real quick. Okay, let's go with that for right now. And Marjorie, I, the first initial of your last name real quickly. I'll get it later. So I have Katie, Esther, Michelle, Maura, Leah, and Marjorie. Hey, good morning, Katie. Question for Kim. Good morning, Melanie. Thank you for your service. And Kim G, uh, you knocked it out of the park. Thank you. Um, one of the things I was hoping you could address is a phone call I get along a lot, which is um, I'm recovered, but I'm having confusion around my abstinence. I'm, ha I'm recovered, but I'm not clear on the food. And um, a lot of thinking and talking and, you know, writing and soul searching around food. And I'm just wondering how you address that, because um, I know I need to learn how to um, address it in a very effective way and just wanted to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Thanks, Katie. And, uh, Katie's a beautiful example of any length. She's a new mom, and I hear her on the line every morning, so you inspire me, my friend. Um, 
I mean, that, that's a common question I get too, Katie. And, you know, I always like to go to those 10-step promises. You know, if, if they are not feeling neutrality around food, which to me is what they're saying, is they're feeling torn to those trying to play around with the food, um, then they're not recovered. You know, recovered means that I've absolutely gone through all 12 steps and I've had a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. You know, one of the things that I, I realized, um, which is hard, it's hard, is that I'm more concerned with saving someone's life than hurting someone's feelings. Because we need to tell each other the truth. You know, a, a, a AA speaker said a couple months ago, I love that, he said that, you know, I don't want to jump off the cliff, but I sure like the view from the top. So what I do is I do find that people try to test the boundaries of what they can do with the food. If you are truly grounded in 10, 11, and 12, you don't care. You don't care. If someone has picked up their binge food and, quote, unquote, gotten away with it, that to me means they don't understand what powerlessness is. The powerlessness is the idea that I never, ever, ever can have those foods again and that I have to be grounded in this work. So I try to get them to look at, you know, what is your abstinence? Tell me what that is and tell me how that's fitting in. You know, one of the differences I do find, Katie, um, is because we are, like I said, what I find sometimes is that certain foods will get sexy. So sometimes it's just that they are finding that foods that were um, neutral and didn't have a problem with um, seven, you know, whatever time ago, they're starting to notice those foods have some, they're starting to get some excitement out of it. And that to me is just they have to be real clear on the effect, which is why the fact that we have to go through these steps. If something is starting to create an effect in me, because as my disease progresses, maybe certain foods that I could eat suddenly are becoming entertainment. But if you're in a recovered state and you recognize that, you will very willingly put down the food. So I don't know. I like to use those 10-step promises as a gauge because if they're not feeling the neutrality, if they're not feeling safe and protected, if they're not having it be removed and they're starting to obsess again, then maybe talk to them about what that means and go back to the idea of the effect. And if they're getting effect from those foods, they have to put them down. And if they are willing, if purposely having those foods, seeing what they can get away with, they need to go back through the steps. Because the way that I look at it is 1 through 9 gets us unblocked and 10, 11, and 12 keeps us unblocked. So if we pick up, we're blocked again, which means we have to go back through those steps in order to get unblocked to get the depth and weight we need out of 10, 11, and 12. And I hope that helps. Thank you, Katie G., for the question. Esther C., your question, please. Hi, good morning. This is Esther C. Thanks so much, Kim, um, for speaking to those of us who've been on the journey for a bit. I had a question regarding the 10th step. You touched on this idea that, you know, when we process um, you know, our, our discomfort, our irritability, our resentments during the day, we should share it with someone else so that we get an objective view of uh, things. So I'm finding that, number one, they're not, you know, among our membership, there are not that many recovered people. Um, the ones that are recovered may, may be difficult to reach. And that even upon reaching recovered people, not everyone takes us to the big book, right? There could be like a slogan more, have a slogan type of response where, you know, go to and go to God, live and let live, things like that. Um, do you feel that every um, 10-step that comes up, every resentment, every fear that comes up needs to be shared with someone else? Or, um, you know, I also recall reading that Bill W. Bill w. had written in one of his writings that, you know, there were servicemen who went to fight in World War II, had, and he said they did very well. And I always imagined that they surely didn't have, you know, couldn't stop and process 10-steps necessarily with another, but that, 
that if they were truly understood the nature of their disease and, the, the, and had the desire to grow, that they, they could serve as their own, uh, um, you know, temporarily their own, uh, I don't know, mirror to, to who they really are. So I just wanted you to comment on that. Thanks. Thanks, Esther, for the question. I'll talk about my evolution with the 10 steps. When I first um, you know, got recovery, and this is something actually someone from college, it was one of the best advice I got when I graduated college. I, I'm a, I was a shy kid, and the counselor said, Kim, go do a bunch of interviews for jobs that you don't want so that when you get the job interview for the job you do want, you're going to feel comfortable with interviewing. So what I did was, um, and I can't call people at work. I mean, it's just not possible with my job. So what I would do in the beginning is I would, and this was before I had a smartphone, so I would take index cards to work, and I go to the bathroom every hour and a half. It's just, it's just the way I am naturally. So every hour and a half, I would go in the bathroom with an index card and write SRDF, selfish, dishonest, resentful, and fearful. And I would write down, and I would be shocked how I was, you know, plagued by that and not knowing it because my natural state was to be anxious, so I couldn't even tell when I was disturbed. And what I would do is call someone and say, can I call you at 7 o'clock tomorrow with a bunch of 10 steps? And I would do these index cards, and I would call that person at 7 o'clock and review them. And what I suggest to my sponsors, which is what I did, is to get a group of five to seven people around you that will bring you to the book and tell you the truth. Because my experience, if I call someone and they tell me that, oh, honey, don't worry about it, take a bubble bath, great person to talk to is not a great person to do a 10-step with. If I call someone and they start yelling at me and telling me what to do, that's not a great person to do a 10-step with. And you are right. It's difficult. I've had to utilize AA people as well because there's not a large community of people that are doing this work. But I just know for myself, in my disease, if I went to a, a store and they didn't have my favorite binge food, did I go home and say, oh, well, <laughs> I guess I won't have that binge food today. I would go store to store to store in order to get that binge food. Now, let me tell you, as I've grown in, in, in this program, is that I have a, like three or four plays that always happen. It's always like, oh, my God, they're going to they're gonna find out I'm a loser, to the other extreme of, don't they know who I am? Or, oh, my God, I'm going to look like a fool. And when I do a 10 step and I see that pattern, I'm like, oh, God, here I go again. And, I'll, and I, I don't talk to someone because I recognize that um, that play is happening again. Now, what happens for me is in the 11th step when it says, is there someone that you need to speak to immediately? That's when I look over my 24 hours. But you know what? That 10th step popped up quite a few times today. I better call someone and discuss it with it and see what's going on. So it really just, it depends. And this is just my opinion again. And I know people will, tell, will differ from me. I believe that immediately in 1939 is very different than immediately in 2018. They didn't have Twitter and texting and cell phones. And you're right. Like, I mean, they couldn't call people. They, they had a phone that was attached to the wall let alone the people going off to war. But my belief is whatever brings you freedom. And I believe that, that there's a choreography of God that brings people together. So if you have a sponsor that tells you you have to call someone every single time, call someone every single time. You know, the, the, this is another cautionary tale that I just want to say. I will get phone calls from people that panic because their sponsor picked up and they don't know what to do because they've only done 10 steps and step work with their sponsor. This is a community. We, we need to be having a community. You know, it takes a village to keep me recovered at least. So I think it's important to have that community around because we have a high sense of relapse. If we put our, all our, our eggs in one basket, you know, and think this one person is going to help us, then we're going to be vulnerable if that person picks up. So I guess my bottom line is that I believe that, that um, the whole point of 10-11 is freedom. 
And we have to look at that. And what, had, what brought me freedom seven years ago is different than what brings me freedom now. But it's always that North Star of the inventory work, connections with recovered people, connection with a higher power. And that might look different throughout the years. I hope that's helpful. Thanks. Thank you, Esther C., for your question. Michelle L., your question, please. Thank you, Melanie. Hi, Kim. This is Michelle in Delaware. Thank you so much for all sharing all your wisdom. Um, you talked about going to open AA meetings and um, just sinking into the spirituality there, um, and I've experienced that as well. But I'm curious if you share at these meetings, and if so, how do you identify yourself, and how do you reference your alcoholic foods or your binge foods? Thanks, Michelle. Um, I, I mostly go to AA meetings as a student, so I'm really there just, just to, to learn. Um, but there have been meetings that I've been regular at that I talk to the, um, I'll talk to the leaders or home group people and let them know that I'm a compulsive overeater and would they feel comfortable with me sharing as long as it's not about step one. Because my step one is different. You know, but I can talk about 10 steps. I can talk about need for a power. I can talk about resentments and fears. And as long as they're okay with it, yeah, I'll share. Um, I have to tell you, one time I was, I was in this meeting and I was, they had no problem with it. And the leader asked me to leave the meeting. And it was on the ninth step. And he, I, he said, well, this has nothing to do with food. He said, you know, I, I really need a leader. So I did it. I will never, ever do that again. That felt so wrong for me. Um, to be leading an AA meeting if I'm not an alcoholic. Um, but I, I think it's totally up to the group um, there. But I really do go there as a student, so I mostly stay quiet. In fact, the meeting I talked about last Thursday is actually not even an AA meeting. It's, it's a meeting that is being held in a, in a rehab, and they're just kind of starting it for people to go through the big book. So it's the first time I've ever been in a meeting that I actually identify myself as a, as a recovered compulsive overeater because it wasn't an AA meeting, and if anybody in that room had problems with food, I wanted them to know about it so that, so that I could be helpful to them. Um, but I really feel it's up to the home group, and we have, we have to have conversations with people for what their comfort level is, not what my comfort level is. That's it. Thank you so much, you. Michelle L., for your question. And we have Maura, Leah, and Marjorie still in this lineup for questions. Maura, see your question, please. Thank you, Melanie, for your service. Thank you, Kim, for shooting from the hip like my good Yankee girl. Thank you very much. I appreciate all that honesty. <clears throat> I have a question. I might have misunderstood you. You were talking about step six. And you said that, um, I believe you said something about not focusing on the assets, but just leaving that to God to remove the defects. So my question is, and if I got that all wrong, you'll straighten me out. So my question was, how do I let go of defects if I'm not focusing on practicing the assets? Thanks, Maura. Um, well, to me, the way that you worded that is you're playing God. How do I work on the assets? The whole idea is that I'm, see, I didn't, I don't think I mentioned this, but I believe six and seven is my step one for life. These are now the things I'm powerless over. So if I'm powerless over my defects, what makes me think I have power to to, to, to control it. What makes me think I have power to, um, you know, to, uh, to, to, to do certain things? Like, like I said, like I, I know I should be honest. 
I mean, that's not a mystery to me. I can't do that on my own. So I think of it this way, you know, when, when God removes the fear, love will naturally pop up. When God removes the dishonesty, honesty will naturally pop up. If I'm trying to force myself to practice a certain way, I heard this in a meeting too, Mar, I love it. Someone, someone had said that in religion, they say, here are the principles, do them. In the 12 steps, it says, here are the principles, you don't have the power to do them. So what I'm doing is I'm asking God in to remove those defects. And just like a beach ball in the water, when I let go of the beach ball, like it, it just naturally pops up. Now, if that works for you to try to work on your assets and that you're getting freedom from it, continue to do that. But the way that I was taught and the way that it works for me is I have spent my life trying to figure things out and work by self-propulsion like it talks about in step three. And what that has done for me personally is it has failed me utterly. What has worked for me is to surrender to a higher power, and that higher power will build with me and do with me as he will, and then it naturally comes into me that it doesn't feel comfortable being dishonest anymore. It feels, it, I, I feel at harmony with being honest because God has removed my dishonesty versus me trying to be honest. But once again, I believe this is freedom, and I, I can tell you that there's people I really respect in, in LA and AA that, don't, that see it differently. And like I said, I, tr I would trust your sponsor and I would trust what, 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 what trust your own experience versus if that doesn't work for you. Excellent. Thanks so much, Marzi, for your question. Leah D., your question for Kim. Good morning. Hi, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Kim G. Thank you so much. I feel like I've been through a uh, spiritual revival this morning and I needed it very much. Um, you said something, and I believe that, you know, unless we grow, unless we work it, unless we do it, we're not going to understand it and get it. I've got a sponsee who I've been working with a long time, and doesn't matter why, she keeps getting funk. F-R-U-N-K, that's my new word from yesterday. I just made it up. She keeps getting funk and picking up. It's like being drunk. And as you were speaking, I said to myself, maybe I should have her read the doctor's opinion with someone for today. Let her go out there and do the work. I feel... I need to pray to God for another way to help her. I'm not God, and I cannot, under any circumstance, get anyone to not pick up or to, to recover or to have the miracle. I want to know how you feel about that. Do you ever get frustrated when the situation is that you see someone wants so bad and for whatever reason they're still, you know, picking up and getting funk, and I really like that word, so I use it again. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, Lady. That's a, that's a cool word. Um, you know, I often get questions about what do you do when somebody picks up? What do you do if they pick up two times or three times? I don't believe this is a one-size-fit-all um, answer. What I personally do is before I take on a sponsee, before I even make a phone call to somebody, before when someone picks up and I, and I talk to them, I get quiet with my higher power and ask, can I be useful to this person? Because sometimes it's yes and sometimes it's no. Because am I being driven by my ego saying, I'm going to make this person recover, or am I being driven with, with God saying, you know, you can, you can be useful to this person. You know, I love the saying, and I actually um, did meditation on this this morning, that I am the faucet, God is the water. So I just have to let God work through me. Now, as far as getting discouraged, that's one of the reasons I work with a lot of people. Because what I find is if I'm working with a couple, I start to get overly invested with people and I get annoyed and, and, and I can get frustrated. And that's not being useful to people. 
if I'm working with a bunch of people and somebody picks up and stops calling me, then I let them have their path. And I don't, I'm, I'm on to the next person, so I'm not personalizing it and not allow me to be available to them if they call me back and need help. Does that make sense? Hopefully. Yes, I, but I just wanted your opinion of letting them go out and working with others, like almost immediately. I'm working with this person a year. It's just a matter of I'm not God at all. I know who I am. It's just that what can we do as, as, as recovered people to give another dimension to those 12 steps? Because I feel like when I first came in, I needed something else to turn me around. That's all. Well, if, I, if I'm working with someone and they're continuously picking up, I'm not being useful to them. So I often will say to people, you know, you've heard my shtick. Maybe you need a different teacher. You know, and I, and I should not, I don't set myself up as God. They should, that's one of the reasons I have people make phone calls, not because it's a tool, but because I want them to hear different perspectives. I want them to create a community around them so they're not dependent on me. One of the things I really believe in is to have God dependency, not sponsor dependency. So I work really hard at weaning them off of me as soon as possible. So I will often tell them to call people, you know, read the doctor's opinion, call, call a few people, ask them what their favorite paragraph is, and just have a discussion about it. I think that's healthy in general, whether someone picked up or not, personally. Thank you so much for the question, Leah. That was Leah D. Marjorie, you are up next, and the first initial of your last name, please. Your question. Hi, it's Marjorie G., recovered in New Mexico. And I have two questions. Thank you so much, Kim. My first question is, as you continue to take your personal inventory, what delights and surprises you? Delights or surprises you? Uh, you know, I mean, the inventory to me is, is about getting those, rid of those things that, um, that, are, that are objectionable. I, I think I'm delighted and surprised when I do an 11-step at night when I realize that something happened to me that would have been a 10-step, that would have devastated me, that would have ruined my day, and it wasn't even a blip on my radar because I've done enough spiritual work that those things aren't bothering me anymore. But the inventory for me is really about looking at what are, what are those, those blocks that block me from people around me because I need them removed in order to have a spiritual experience. I think my delight is more in step 11 when I can see my spiritual growth versus the inventory, which I'm trying to still dig deeper into those things that, that need to be removed so I can have a deeper relationship with God and the people around me. Thanks for that. That was delicious. And my second question is, um, I often hear, and and I'm finding this true for myself, that when I address the buildup of everyday emotions, um, I don't carry that stuff forward. But in your experience, in your experience with dealing with everyday emotions, do you address the buildup of emotions that are on the sunny side of the feeling spectrum? So a lot of the time I'm dealing with the fear and the resentment but then I also experience buildup of other emotions like delight or elation or or whoop-dee-doo. How do you address that? 
you know, on page 88, it talks about what I call the 11-step promises. So if we're grounded in this work, it says, we are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, and foolish decisions. And it says excitement. So what I have found for myself as an addict is any emotion in the extreme is not good, not good for me. So what I found is most um, beneficial in the food is neutrality. What I have found most beneficial in my recovery is having neutrality. So I don't really think about emotions. I don't work on my emotions. What I work on is my thoughts and my actions. And when I work on my thoughts and my actions through 10 and 11, the emotions seem to, to level out. Now, what I often hear um, is that people almost think they're going to be exempt from human emotions if they are recovered, if they do this work. And that's not true. I mean, I just had a sponsee um, pass away suddenly a couple months ago. I was devastated. And I was able to use step work so that I could be emotionally um, neutral, so I could be useful. I could help, you know, I was helping people that also were suffering this loss who were her sponsees. Who were, who were around there, um, I was able to talk to her family and be in neutrality and be available for them. Um, I had to work on some stuff. I mean, this is a side thing, but she was a single woman that, um, that died and her family's going through all this stuff with probate. Well, I'm contacting a lawyer now. I'm a single woman and I have a brother that's learning disabled. I need to get a will in order so that he's taken care of when I die and my, my family doesn't have to go through the same thing. But if I'm emotionally charged by it, I'm not useful. So the way that I think about it is this Step process is not about emotions, it's about thoughts and it's about action. And by doing that work, the emotions tend to dissipate because the emotions of a roller coaster, high or low, put me at danger of a mental twist, in my opinion and in my experience. Thanks, Kim. Melanie, are you there? I am. I so I so kindly muted myself. <laughs> I don't have any noise. <laughs> Thank you. I wanted to invite others to ask you questions this morning. We have time for probably three or four more. And this will be our final invitation for questions for Kim. Who would like to ask her a question? Leslie W. Roz P. And Roz. Hi, Roz. Hi. Carol H. Carol H. Well, let's go with those three and see how that goes. But this should be our last invitation. So if there's a question that you have, you might want to press star one to be able to ask that. I'll wait just another second. One, 1,000. Okay, so all minds are clear. Leslie, Roz, and Carol will be our last question askers today. Hi, Leslie. Good morning. Hi, Melanie. Hi, Kim. Thank you so much for this morning. I always love listening to you um, and getting that getting that dose of um, New Jersey New Jersey honesty. Um, what I wanted to ask was that I I talk to um, I help uh, a lot of moms. Um, in recovery and it's just um, a passion of mine and and I um, yeah the question that I get the question that I get is um, yeah buddy 
is a lot is, is, is how do I balance my program work with my family life? And you touched on it a little bit when you talked about the most important place to practice these principles is in our home. And, um, you know, I, I, I realize that you don't have kids, you have dogs, those are your kids. But, you know, a lot of times I, I struggle with, with how to answer this question because I too am still learning how to, you know, not give too, how to balance that and make sure that I'm paying attention to my husband and my kids because I can get on the phone and, you know, talk and talk and talk all day and give, give of myself all day to my fellows and then have nothing, nothing, sometimes nothing left over for my family, which isn't fair to them. So I just, I just thought maybe I would ask, throw that out there and see if you had any uh, thoughts on that. Thanks. Thanks, Leslie. I'm going to preface this first. Once again, this is my opinion that the word balance, I remember hearing in a meeting, the gentleman, someone was saying they're trying to find balance in their life. And the gentleman said, sounds to me like you're trying to manage your life. And that really hit home for me because balance was me making decisions based on self, which usually put me in a position to be hurt. I often hear people say, well, I have to practice self-care. Yet I'm told in step three that selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of my trouble. So I look again to step page 88 and step 11, where it says we become much more efficient and we do not tire so easily. We are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. So what I do is I get quiet with God and I say, Am I, if I'm not being efficient and I am exhausted, then God, you show me how to do that. So I am not making those decisions based on what I want, but that God's going to allow me to be more efficient. Because a spiritual practice is saying no as much as it's saying yes. But when I am making that decision in my own head, by my own self-will, it often is a problem. If I am doing that through prayer and meditation and God is leading me to say, I mean, I do it all the time with sponsoring. I sponsor a lot of people. And what I find is if I have too many, I start to get nasty and I start to get snarky and I start to be inefficient. So I'm asking God in to where can I be efficient? Where can I not be so exhausted? And then I'm basing those decisions on God's will. In that same page, we alcoholics are undisciplined. So we let God discipline us in the simple way we just outlined. What's the simple way we just outlined? It's the 12 steps. So it's just a suggestion. You might come to the same exact conclusion, and it might be called balance. But what I find is if when I'm basing it on God's will and not my will, and think of that line from step three, even in my best moments, I'm a producer of confusion rather than harmony. If I'm in confusion, it's based on self-will. If I'm in harmony, it's based on God's will. And this is, again, for me. I often hear people say, I need to live life on life's terms, which is in one of the stories in the back. I have spent my life living on life's terms. Power, property, prestige, pulling myself on my bootstraps. That, to me, is life on life's terms. What I have learned to do through these 12 steps is I now live on God's terms. One of the things I do in the morning is when I'm in the shower, I call it my little plans and designs time. All the things that I'm supposed to do throughout the day. And as I get out of the shower, I say, God, help me to live a life of invitation today. And whatever you present to me is what's going to get done. And if it's not presented, it's okay that it doesn't get done. Do I still plan? Absolutely. I'm a human being. 
But what I do is I try to surrender into this process so that those plans are based on what God is telling me to do and, or, or principles. I always use that word God generically, people. Um, what God wants me to do versus what Kim thinks needs to be done that day. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, it is. I think, I think so. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you, Leslie W., for your question. Roz G., your question, please, for Kim. Hi, Kim G. This is Roz G. in Los Angeles. And um, I've heard you say, you know, throughout the couple of years that I've been uh, listening, partaking in Vision for You meetings, is, you know, food for entertainment. Food for entertainment. And I had a light bulb moment this morning, and I it really hit me that I believe that I still use food for entertainment occasionally. And I thought about my taste buds and when, you know, say if I like think, okay, I'm going to be abstinent 100% today entire. Then I think about how awful those foods taste. And I think about my taste buds and I think, uh, I was given taste buds to taste. So, you know, this may be a kind of a stupid question, but a lot of abstinence foods taste terrible to me. And I like to taste things. So this may help other people, but how do you deal with taste? And I would appreciate if you could answer that. Thank you. Sure, thank you. I mean, I think there's a difference I enjoy my food. This is not about eating bad food so that I don't want to eat anymore. But there's a difference between enjoying my food and it being entertainment. So what I mean by entertainment is when food is entertainment, if I was asked to go to a party, the party was determined by what food they were going to have. I mean, that's one of the things I found for myself. I used to go to Super Bowl parties because my favorite binge foods were at Super Bowl parties. Once I stopped, you know, was recovered, I don't go to Super Bowl parties anymore because I don't like football. I didn't realize I, I was going there just because of the food. That was entertainment for me. But I should enjoy my food. I think of it, I'm using another uh, off, off example, maybe it will be helpful, is I absolutely love showers. I'm, I'm, a very, I'm very affected by smell. So I'm a single woman, and in my shower, there's three shampoos, three conditioners, and three body washes. And every day I get to pick a different one. And I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy it. But 10 minutes after my shower, I don't think about my shower. It was enjoyable while it was there. But the rest of the day, I'm not going back and thinking, wow, I need to get back in the shower. I need to get back in the shower. And the next morning, I enjoy my shower again. It's the same thing. I enjoy my food while I'm eating it. But I don't think about it 10 minutes later, 15 minutes later. The next meal comes up, I enjoy it. I don't think about it a half hour before I'm eating it and a half hour after I'm eating it. So that's what I mean by entertainment. When it becomes the focus outside of what's really going on in the world, that's a problem. And once again, I, what I would encourage you to do is, is, is go back into that doctor's opinion. Be real clear on what it means to have the effect and be real clear on what foods create the effect in you, and that's what you need to abstain from. But there's nothing wrong with enjoying our food. We can enjoy our food. It's just we can't have those foods that create the phenomenon of craving. And I hope that helps a little bit. Thank you, Roz G., for your question. And Carol H., your question, please, and that'll be the last one for today. Good morning to you. Good morning, Melanie. This is Carol H. in northern Colorado. Thank you, Melanie, for all you do. 
And thank you, Kim. I learned so much when I learned, when I listened to you and I just love your analogies. <laughs> your analogies really helped me understand things more clearly um, and put that, put it in, in, in simpler terms. Um, I was just wondering if you could reiterate or clarify when you were talking about in the um, we agnostics chapter and you were referring to the agnostic temperament, the atheist temperament and um, relating those to self-sufficiency. If you could go over that again for me, I'd really appreciate it. Okay, so, so the definition of an atheist is someone who does not believe in God. Definition of an agnostic is someone who's not sure if God exists. And a believer is someone who believes that God definitely exists. So in a 12-step program, we are, our problem is that we're self-centered and not other-centered if, if you don't believe in a specific God or God-centered if you believe in a, you know, a deity, let's say. So in that context, an atheist is someone who's totally self-reliant, doesn't believe there's any power that's going to help me. I have to do it. I'm going to pull myself on my bootstraps. It's all about what I push in this world. An agnostic is someone who believes, yeah, there's places that maybe God can help me, but you know what? Finance and romance, absolutely not. He's not getting in there. I have to do this on my own. He might be able to help me maybe in some OA stuff, but my kids, I have to lord over my children because I am in control of that. That's agnostic temperament. And then um, a believer is someone who believes that every aspect of their life is determined by a higher power. They surrender 100% to the idea that I am powerless and it's my connection with that power that makes my life possible. So throughout the day, I can get into places where I'm totally self-reliant. You know, um, for example, at, at work right now, I have to make it happen. I and mean, I, I keep joking, it's like the Hunger Games at work because everyone's, we're not sure who's going to get laid off. We're all trying to like beat each other out. I can be of agnostic temperament where I can let me back and let um, this, this work stuff go. But you know what? Something's going on with my brother and, I, and I'm the big sister and I have to take care of it and I have to make sure he's okay. And then there might be times in the day where I am totally surrendered saying, you know what, this is God's will and I just have to surrender to it. So I can be in all three in a 24-hour period. Does that make it a little bit clearer? Very clear. I, I appreciate you going over that again. Thank you. Thank you, Carol H., for your question. And that will conclude the question and answer segment of this presentation today. I wanted to give you the share ID number one more time for Sunday, April 8, 2018, which is today's Sunday special edition. That is 11266, 11,266. And so we will now close with the reading on page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless 